This morning we're going to be looking at the idea, uh, contained within the idea of Advent, Advent, uh, what it is for Jesus to be the coming wisdom. Now wisdom is one of these things that we kind of kick around in our minds and think through, and there are a lot of things that, that pass as wisdom that aren't really. They, they more serve in the vein of, of pithy statements. And so Ben Franklin was really good at the idea of kind of pithy statements. Having these ideas that would come up, again, Winston Churchill was excellent. A lot of Winston Churchill statements are not uh, edifying. They're not good for Sunday morning address, but I recommend them to you. They're fantastic. But Ben Franklin, uh, you know, he had these that would say, a penny saved is a penny. He'd say, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and there you go. You guys are already there. All right. Sunday lunch, let's go. And so, but what we find is when we lean too heavily upon our human constructions of wisdom, when we kick to the side, aren't giving credence, aren't giving attention to God, we can do things that those around us look at us and say, Matt, that was pretty wise. Matt, that was pretty smart. That was pretty intelligent. And God's looking down at me saying, you fool. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? And I'm saying, well, God, I, I'm receiving this, this applause. I'm receiving this word from all those around me. And they're saying, I'm being prudent. I'm being wise. I'm being smart. I'm, I'm doing these things. I'm doing all those things that those around me look at and say, this is good. This is proper. This is right. One of the things we see in the book of Isaiah is that the Israelites are facing and getting ready for the onslaught of the Assyrians. And so they're looking around saying, who might we ally ourselves with to stave off this advance? How might we keep ourselves safe? What would they say? They may say, what would be a smart, what would be a wise, what would be a prudent decision? And so they reach out to the Egyptians and they begin to ally themselves with the Egyptians. And what we find is that God is up in heaven saying, Why? This isn't wise, this isn't right, this isn't prudent. What they're doing, what they were doing was engaging in worldly wisdom. And so they seek to ally themselves with the Egyptians, and what we see is this, all this really does is spur up the Assyrian advance that moves in. Look at this. The prophet Isaiah, speaking to those people, said these words, and we're going to see Paul quoted here in 1 Corinthians 1. He says these words. It says, this people draw near me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They don't have this right response before God. They're emulating those things they see, but it's not really this heart response before God. Therefore, he says, the wisdom of their wise men will perish. The discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Now, in Proverbs 9.10, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, wisdom, properly understood, is only ever meant to be seen through the lens of Jesus. We have to understand this. You see, you can engage in any number of behaviors, any number of responses that will be seen by your colleagues, your neighbors, your mother-in-law even, as wise. But any of those decisions, any of those actions outside of the lens of Jesus cannot be rightly understood as wise. Now, the Apostle Paul is addressing any number of problems uh, in this church that he writes to in the city of Corinth. But one of the things that they're really upset with him about is not engaging in more rhetorical flourish. Simply put, they don't think he can bring it. 
They don't think he does well speaking. They're not impressed with his eloquence. And so Paul writes this insightful word that we read in 1 Corinthians 1.17. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And listen to this, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. He is seeking to invert their paradigm. They had an unhealthy evaluation. They had an unhealthy sense of what was valuable in the eyes of this world. And they were bringing that and applying that on the framework of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he writes to them and he says, I am not seeking to engage you primarily from the advent of wisdom because Jesus brings wisdom in a decidedly different way. So what we're going to see today as we study through 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, is what happens when the wisdom of God comes into our hearts. Let me read for us 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. It invites you to read along in your copy of God's Word. Paul writes and says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul offers us here an amazing word on wisdom. Let's study together. Starting in verse 18, Paul writes and he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And then conversely, he says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so Paul, if you were to walk into this room, Paul, if you were to walk into any room, any auditorium, any gathering of people, any segment of our population, he might be able to split us into two different and distinct groups. You see, he could walk into any group and he say, look, I, I, I see you here. I see the Hamels. I see the Potts. I see Shane. I see the Collins. I see everybody else. And within the confines of this room, we have those who are perishing. And within the confines of this room, we have those who are being saved. Now, there's one thing we can recognize about both of these terms. They are are continually moving and growing, okay? They are advancing. And so if you find yourself, and Paul steps into this room, and I'm here and you're reading this, and you find yourself outside the realm of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And, And we see here that ultimately it is in their response to the cross. And so if you apprise the cross, if you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you say, I don't like it, I don't want it, I don't need it, I think it's stupid, I think it's ridiculous, I think this, this, and this, if I were to save the world, this is how I would engage in that process. If you were to look at it and this is your general response, one of disdain, stiff arm, and you're just far off from it, Paul's word to you is that you are currently perishing. Now, this isn't the time for you to grab your chest and say, I didn't feel any chest pains until he said that. 
I mean, man, you're not reaching for your statins. You're not trying to lower the blood pressure. You're not trying to handle anything. What Paul's communicating to you is if nothing changes, the current trajectory of your life ends in being separated from the love of God forever. Situated off this one thing. He doesn't look at you and say, Justin, you're a terrible person. I heard it from Shannon. He doesn't look at you and say, Sandy, you're an amazing person. I heard it from Ken. And on the basis of their testimony, you're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. That's not how he's operating. The basis of our place before God is how we respond to the cross of Christ. You can think it's ridiculous. You can think it's foolish. And in fact, the word in here he uses, he says, they consider it to be moronic. They consider it to be utter madness. It is folly to those who are perishing. Then he turns to this other group. and He's not keying in on anything good, right, or proper about your behavior. He's not keying in on the testimony of all those around you. He's not keying in on some decision you made when you were seven that you vaguely remember. But your parents have enshrined at your home this testimony of baptism. And so that's what you point to. What he is pointing to is your current, steady, unassailable recognition of what the cross of Jesus Christ is. He says, because you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say it is the power of God, you recognize the sacrifice of Jesus, you are currently being saved. And we recognize the chief distinction between these two groups is the fixed nature of one and the transient nature of the other. If you are considering that you are among those who are being saved by God, we recognize the fixity, the certainty of your situation before God on the basis that it is God himself that has saved you. It's not that God submitted to you and said, Jesse and Anna, I'm going to give you a 10-question test, and at the end of this, if you score a 70 or better, you make it into heaven. And so you look at it, you, you, uh, you adopt, you change the manner of life, you quit stealing, you quit lying, you quit hanging out with girls that do, and so all these things are lining up in your life, and at the end of this, God says, well, I guess I just have to let you in. It is God that saves you. It's the effective work of his cross implanted into your life through faith that saves you. That's why you can't lose it. The other group, we find that we are all a part of. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 and says that we are all once dead in our trespasses and sins, those things that we love, we adore, we are enmeshed in and admired in. Me, your saintly grandmother, Billy Graham, Rosemary Harper. Okay, not her. But moving on. We recognize that this is where we all were once, and some of us still are. God's response to you and your, his recognition of where you are, you are currently perishing. But as your potential response to the cross changes, so too may your final destination, so too may be your current predicament. So we find this group, he says, you have those who are perishing, those who are being saved. And look what he's doing. He's founding this. He's grounding the surety of what he said in this passage from Isaiah. He says, for it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning, the discernment of the discerning, I'll thwart. 
Effectively, what Paul is doing is he's moving through in this, and he's saying, if you apply worldly wisdom to the gospel of Jesus Christ in some hope that you can change, contort it, or make it more palatable, it's not for you. The wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerned. If you seek to take the cross of Jesus Christ and make it more palatable, Seek to make it this thing that rationally you can understand. You can wrap your mind around. You say, oh, yeah, that makes good sense now. I get that. I understand that. I understand why he did this. I understand that. It makes the best sense in the world. And on the basis of this, I'm in, Jesus. Like, where do I sign? Kind of lost me on the whole being, being born as a baby thing. But I made it past that somehow, and now I'm ready to submit. Coming to salvation in Jesus Christ is not rational assent. It's not moving through this checklist of things saying, this is crazy, but I can suck that up. This is crazy, but I can suck that up. It's looking at it and saying, all there is is the cross of Christ and me, a helpless sinner. This is what it is. It's recognizing all your faults, all your failures, not trying to make yourself look better. I mean, it's like shirt untucked over here like this, stains running down and saying, this is all I've got, God. God said, all I've got is the cross of Jesus. It's not trying to make ourselves look better. It is fully relying on the cross of Jesus Christ to accomplish that very thing that we are incapable of accomplishing on our own. Let's just be honest. When you look at the cross of Christ and you look at the pattern that God used to save humanity, it is, in some sense, ridiculous. The God of the universe spoke everything into existence. He sent his son, full divinity, full humanity, into the middle of nowhere, born to no one. It's not that Joseph and Mary, that there is this pole taken in heaven, and God said, who are the two potentially most holy people we've got? Who are the potentially most two holy people, like up-and-coming people, that if somebody were to look down at them and say, oh, man, y'all, you got to know Joseph and Mary. Like, they're new on the scene, but once they hit it, I mean, it is amazing. They're nobody. Nazareth is nowhere. Bethlehem is insignificant. And he sends a helpless baby into the midst of this. In the midst of this, he allows his son to grow in poverty. His early followers are semi-literate men who do not have up-and-coming careers. I mean, it's not that he walks up and says, you know, where are my CPAs, where are my bank executives, where are my lawyers, where are my judges, where are my small business entrepreneurs, where are my engineers? He finds no one. He finds the, the men that if, if somebody were to look and think in that day, who would be those guys that you wouldn't want to entrust with a world-transforming enterprise? Man, it's fishermen, right? It's not rational. Don't seek to empty the cross of its power by making Christianity more palatable to those you encounter. The power for transformation rests in the cross of Jesus Christ, not your ability to put the story into a form and a fashion that is less offensive. It says he empties the wisdom of the wise, he empties the discernment of the discerning. 
And look what he does. Paul systematically moves through and seeks to offend every group he can and all the wise men within said group. He asks rhetorically, he says, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? In essence, he splits the world into two groups. He says, we've got Jews on this side, we've got Greeks on this side. And he says, we're the smartest people you've got. He turns to the Jewish side, he says, where's the scribe? Where's the person among you who is an absolute expert in the law? Where somebody walks up and says, you need to do this. He's like, no, 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 you've not seen subparagraph two, letter C, hidden in fine print, 20 pages buried back in the appendix. Because if you knew this, you could do whatever the heck you wanted to do. Really, I could do this. He's talking about the people that were so excellent at their parsing, their understanding of the law, that they had transformed the idea of you shouldn't plow, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath, that you should not spit on the Sabbath, because when you hit dirt, dirt splits, and splitting dirt is plowing. How you get there, I don't know. Maybe they lived in West Texas. And so what he, what he does in this is he moves through and he says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the one who knows the law to the nth degree? Where is the debater of this age? He goes to the Greek. He says, you highly value philosophy. You think it is the highest attainment, highest level of anything that humanity might possibly be able to achieve. You crave, you desire rationality. So he goes to the Jewish mind, he goes to the Greek mind. He says, where are they? And this is what he does. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? To those very people that look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, it is crazy, it is ridiculous, I can't buy into this. Paul says, to those very people, God upends the wisdom of this world. He inverts the order. He makes their wisdom ridiculous. We recognize God is not playing by the rules that we would desire him to play with. He's not engaging in the practices that we find normal. The rules of engagement may be confining to us in the social order, but they are not confining to our God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And we would all answer and echo and say, yes, amen, praise God. He says, for since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Pay attention to this. God deemed it so that the world would be unable to know him through merely an application of its own wisdom. Do you understand what he's saying there? And you've got crazy smart friends. They got their books stuck in noses. I mean, they've got little calluses on their, on their noses from reading and reading and reading. And Paul's point in this is you are unable to attain to God through merely an application of wisdom. You're unable to attain, you're unable to to know God in a saving way merely through an application of wisdom. And God has ordained it thus. So how is humanity saved? Can't know him merely through wisdom. Can't know him merely through the gathering of facts and the right application thereof. He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now we're on to something. Paul recognizes that humanity is primarily being saved. He says, the folly of what we preach, the insanity, the madness, the moronic application of what we preach, what we teach, the very content of it has the power 
to bring about salvation in those who believe. So salvation, we read again in this, in this Advent, this coming wisdom of God, is not gleaned through knowing special knowledge. It is gleaned, it is, it is brought into us, it is applied to our lives through the knowing of God. And please God to upend, to invert the wisdom, the order of this world. It turns again. Look what he says here in verse 23. He says, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks see wisdom. Over the course of Jesus' ministry, he continued to be engaged by the scribes and the Pharisees. And they'd come up to him, and you see it in, in John, you see it in Luke, you see it in Matthew, you see it in Mark. Over and again, their word to him was, hey, look, I see what you're doing over there. I think we could be down with this. We just need something more. You're over there, you're, you're babbling on about forgiving people of sins. We've seen you heal a couple paralytics. We've seen you do amazing things. We, hunts, we heard once you threw a party, didn't have any food, but yet everybody went away with lots of food left over. I'm going to talk to you about that one too. But effectively, they come up to him and they say, look, we need something more. Give us a sign. Give us something special. Give us something. Apply it to our hearts. Do it in front of us such that impossible for us to deny you. Absolutely impossible. Now this is a people that the way God had previously worked with them is by doing small things. Sending ten plagues into Egypt, parting the Red Sea, being a, a cloud, being a column of fire. Small things, right? So they come to him this is their previous conception of God. They come to him, and their word is, do something. Give us something. Give us a sign. Give us this, this thing. Jesus, over and again, calls them to believe in who he is. And his word to them is that the only sign you'll receive is the sign of Jonah clearly pointing at the three days he would spend in the grave. The only sign God was seeking to communicate through Jesus was his death, his burial, and ultimately his resurrection. And that is the only sign any of us need to see, to believe, to submit ourselves to Jesus. It says the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. Cicero writing 50 or 60 years before Jesus was born, looked at the cross and said, the cross is a word, is a symbol that a Roman's eyes shouldn't see, a Roman's ears shouldn't hear, and a Roman's mind shouldn't apprehend, shouldn't think about it. This is how ghastly the Romans saw the cross. This is how base they saw the cross. And so for the Roman sensibility, for the Greco-Roman sensibility, to think about placing their faith and their belief in a crucified Savior, this one who hung on the very symbol that Cicero said, we can't even utter it. It's so vile for a Roman citizen. They thought the highest thing was wisdom. And here is wisdom personified in the person of Jesus Christ, crucified on a cross. It was Folly, ridiculous, obscene, and, un, and they were unable to overcome their difficulties to get there. 
this. This is what Paul writes. He says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Can I tell you that in our engagement with the gospel, our friends and our family, man, our hearts yearn to have them come to know Jesus. If you have a lost family member, if you have a lost friend, if you have a lost parent or child, do your hearts not yearn? Is there any depth, any length of thing you would not go to to have them respond to the gospel? And we turn ourselves inside out. If I do this, if I do that, if I engage this way, if I take them to Disney World. And in the midst of this, I say, isn't this trip great? But if you knew Jesus, it would be better. And then they say, no, you're like, but I spent thousands of dollars for that punchline. There's nothing we can do. Hear me on this. There's nothing we can do to make our lost family, friends, coworkers, person on the street respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ crucified. And in preaching Christ crucified, we experience the same thing Paul describes here. He says it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. The Jews look at it and they say, curse is the one who hangs on a tree, pulling from Deuteronomy. He turns to the Romans and he says, look, this is what it is. This is crucified Lord. And in their system of deity and their understanding of, of what it is for a God to come, they say this couldn't happen. This is stupid. This is fiction. This is false. So price, or the message Paul communicates is not radically, fundamentally altered on the basis of the reception or lack thereof of his audience. Engage in preaching Christ crucified. So it's a stumbling block to Jews, a folly to the Greeks. Look what he goes on to say. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified changes lives. It's not on the way you throw it out. It's not the word order. It's not the intonation. It's not the rhyme scheme. It's not using iambic pentameter. Christ crucified changes lives. Why? Because it is the only properly understood wisdom of God. Christ crucified invites us to come in to recognize his incredible humility, his brokenness, his servant-heartedness. Christ crucified presents to us a Savior who is broken, who submitted himself to his creation, who poured out his life, who allowed himself to be nailed to a tree. Christ crucified doesn't smack of making ourselves better for God. But what it is, is us coming in and saying, I am an abject sinner. Following in the meekness of Jesus, it's us stepping in and saying, man, I am prideful. I am greedy. I am addicted. I hate. I am bitter. I'm I'm, I'm completely lost. It's us stepping in and, and, and communicating to God our inability to be anything more than what we are. 
Jesus presents the softness of his gospel in the amazing display of love and compassion on the cross of Christ. And we can receive this power of God and the wisdom of God. And look what he writes here in verse 25. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In talking about wisdom in the Old Testament, Paul or not Paul, in talking about wisdom in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 1, there's this personification of wisdom described, and you get into chapter 1 and verse 20. And it says, wisdom cries aloud in the street. And so what we see over and again is that wisdom is crying out to be discerned. Wisdom is crying out to be heard, to be known. And you get into chapter 8 and verse 35 of the book of Proverbs. And it says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But listen to this. He who fails to find me injures himself and all who hate me love death. The only way to come to know Jesus, to be forgiven of your sins, to receive eternal life, is through receiving this wisdom of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you join with me and pray? Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that your wisdom is not our wisdom. I confess that your cross is madness that the way the plan the path that you set upon is not the way that we would have ordained the way that we would have set up and so we look at it we confess we see it as complete and utter madness it's God in some sense ridiculous that you would send your son to take on flesh that he would come into our world that he would suffer at the hand of your creation. But God, we confess that it is the cross of Jesus Christ alone that is able to save us. And so, Father, I pray that we would, in increasing measure, put our faith and trust in the cross of Christ. We wouldn't seek to present ourselves as better than we are. God, that we would humbly fall upon your grace and mercy. You know, the cross of Christ isn't demanding us to be perfect to come to it, but it is making us perfect, holy, and righteous in it. So God, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to your son. And I pray for those who have. God, would your spirit move in our midst? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.